Welcome to the Futures Archive, a show about human-centered design where this season we'll take an object, look for the human at the center, and keep asking questions. I'm Lee Moreau. And I'm David Kong. On each episode, we're going to start with an object. Today, that object is the mask. We'll look at the history of that object from our perspective as designers who've done work in human-centered design. Not just how the object looks and feels, but also the relationship between that thing and the people it was designed for. And with other humans, too. The Futures Archive is brought to you by the design team at Automatic. Later on, we'll hear from a member of Automatic's design council, Pablo Honey. The Futures Archive's education partner this season is Adobe. Hello, David. How are you? Lee, I am fantastic. I am super excited to be here with you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, this podcast is about human-centered design, and this particular episode is going to go much deeper than we've ever gone with where is the human in human-centered design. And so I'm really excited that you're here to join us in this conversation. Well, it is an honor to be here, and um, yeah, excited to dive in. So you've spoken to my class a few times at MIT, and we've collaborated on a couple of projects, but uh, I really wanted you to be in this conversation today because um, at the beginning of the pandemic, you were sort of my Fauci uh, on Instagram, <laughs> right? On, on Instagram, you kept posting and I was like, do we wear masks? Do we not wear masks? And it was like, I just felt like the real stuff was coming from you mm. through all of those posts and the interviews that you were doing. So I felt like uh, there was a really important time where I was leaning. You didn't know it at the time, but I was really leaning on you. That is really, really cool to hear. I'm glad that you were um, one of the few people that was actually listening to my rantings at uh, you know two in the morning in February. So for listeners, it'd be great if you could kind of share a little bit about your work and about your role um, at the Media Lab. Sure, very happy to. So um, I direct this uh, initiative at the Media Lab called the Community Biotechnology Initiative. And so my current work is this exploration of uh, the life sciences uh, and bioengineering, so synthetic biology in particular, which is a, a research area all about uh, engineering the living world and biotech, but thinking about that context explicitly as it relates to equity and justice issues. So thinking about you know what communities ultimately have access to these technologies, who's ultimately shaping it, who has agency, right? And then you know again going back to the the great class that you've been teaching at MIT, design across scales. You know how do we design for the living world with ideally values and worldviews that ultimately connect with agency and participation to super diverse communities all around the world. So my work ends up being part like inventing and building tools, but a huge part of it is actually constructing what, again, you, know, you and I are familiar with this larger term called superminds in a way. So thinking about all of the people and all of the organizations and institutions that comprise the life sciences and how do we structure them in ways that maximize justice and equity. And so that involves things like um, you know, organizing big events to, you know, help uh, the larger network, what are called community biology labs to meet and convene. So people all around the world building grassroots laboratories and, um, you know, basically helping to think about how to really construct and apply organizing principles and collective intelligence uh, practices uh, to really constructing this big global movement. For somebody who's not that familiar with this space, like what is community biotechnology? You you kind of say it as if it's obvious, like, oh, yeah, community biology labs, no yeah, problem. Yeah. But this is kind of a new thing, no? Yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, in that course of kind of the early 2000s, as the field as synthetic biology started to take off, you started to see basically other people um, that were outside of academia asking, well, who else gets to participate in this endeavor? 
And so folks started organizing laboratories, like biology labs, but doing it outside of the academic context. And so um, this kind of field of quote unquote, do-it-yourself biology really started to take off around 2008, 2009, where really formalized laboratories started getting set up that were outside of traditional industry, academic institutions, and really citizen-led um, spaces. And so now the ability for, you know, quote unquote, almost anybody around the world to participate in the life sciences has really increased, you know, dramatically over the past, you know, 10 plus years. And a lot of the work that we've been working at in the Media Lab has really been trying to engage thoughtfully in that and also really doing it in an ethical way as well, which is another really big part of the conversation. Now I want to talk a little bit more about um, the topic at hand today, and that's human-centered design. But specifically, we're going to talk about the mask. As my personal Fauci and my coach in all things uh, COVID-related, um, I know that you wear a mask, but I'm curious, what is your go-to mask? I actually, um, one that I like a lot is the Air Queen. So I don't want to be like a product endorser right now, but um, one of my colleagues that I really, really want to shout out and acknowledge is Jill Crittenden. So Jill Crittenden, um, she is uh, based in um, the McGovern Institute, I believe, at MIT. Um, Jill has done some of the most large-scale experimentation, actually, with masks and materials to try to figure out which ones actually, you know, provide the best filtration of particles and so on. And so the Air Queen is a is a Korean manufacturer. They they make these, but um, they're they're really quite nice. They've got you know kind of the electrostatic barrier that you find in surgical masks. That's one of the big reasons why those masks work quite well. Um, and yeah, and it's got a pretty nice fit. Um, it essentially um, simulates the characteristics of like an N95 mask, um, but it's, you know, it's comfortable. It's, you know, pretty, pretty nice to wear. Okay, that's helpful. You know, typically I'm wearing uh, a black fabric washable mask. And part of that is that it, it accessorizes well with my fashion, right? So like, <laughs> you know, and, and that's big, become part of this. So when we first started, it was like, I'll put anything on my face I can get that's going to keep me safe. But now it's like, I also want to kind of have it look good and like go with my shoes. Oh, yeah, of course. So the way we're going to start this is um, we're going to hear from some experts in the field of masks. We'll hear from some designers, some historians, some engineers who can talk about the history of the mask and kind of give us a sense of where this comes from. Uh, and this is what we've heard so far. It isn't until really uh, the 1600s or the 17th century that we start to see the medical mask be used by physicians to treat patients. Dr. John David Icke is a research fellow and instructor at the University of Michigan. He's talking about how medical masks start going back to the plague and the Black Death, right? Um, and we've all seen kind of pictures of this, people wearing these sort of like long black cloaks and these like masks that come out like a beak, right? It has these nostrils on the side of it. And these nostrils were kind of served a purpose that really tied into the prevailing thought of where disease came from at the time, uh, which is something called miasma theory. And this concept that the reason that people got sick is they inhaled something or they consumed something in the air that was rotting or contain disease. And so the idea that the mask was trying to solve was that, hey, if I take this beak structure and I fill it with these herbs and spices, that in breathing in the air through these side nostril pieces, that we would somehow purify the air and cleanse it. This notion of miasma theory comes a little bit from a sense that we have to keep certain things out of our body, that odors and, and air quality has some sense of good air is good for you and bad air is bad for you. And that's associated with smells and other particles and things like that. And it's already at this point where intuitively we're starting to design sort of with 
the environment outside, but also with our microbiome and a kind of awareness that we have to keep the stuff that's out from getting in. And that was really maybe the the first experience historically of thinking about the world in this way. But what was your first experience of thinking about designing with the microbiome? Should we say a little bit about what the microbiome is for, for this audience? That might be really useful context. Yeah. Okay. So just very, very briefly, uh, microbes, um, we're talking about bacteria, we're talking about archaea, we're talking about all these little, you know, tiny little organisms are essentially everywhere, right? We're talking, you know, all over our bodies in particular. So when we talk about the human microbiome or the human microbiota, we're talking about the hundreds of trillions of organisms that are on our skin and our mouth and our gut. So we're basically these super organisms that are human plus microorganisms. And then when we look at the living world, the built context, again, you know, basically every surface that you can think about that is part of the living world, certainly in the natural world, but even in the built environment, um, you know, subways, you know, inside our homes, et cetera, microbes are, are present. And so um, when we talk about the microbiome, technically that's referring to the genetic material that's, that's uh, present in these microorganisms. So, you know, you look in the human genome, we've got, you know, billions of base pairs of DNA, but the microbiome and the human microbiome, there's even more genetic material. I, I don't want to quote a number because I forget exactly what it is right now, but um, much more than even the billions of base pairs that are present in the human genome are present in the microbes that are inhabiting the body. So a massive, massive influence on, on uh, you know, human life, but also the living world. And, and your first experience, perhaps, or maybe a, a level of awareness with this? Yeah. So I would say, you know, for me, um, you know, I was, uh, before I joined the media lab, I was part of this uh, bioengineering group at uh, Lincoln Laboratory at MIT. And I led this project on um, designing an artificial gut. Okay. And so, so that was really kind of my first uh, real deep foray into this area of, of microbiome, but specifically like physical artifacts that connected to these microbes. The idea that these microbes can influence our cognition, in particular the microbes in the gut when we talk about humans, um, there's these deep, deep correlations between the content of these microbes and their ability to influence you know, neurotransmitters like dopamine, serotonin, so mood, cognition. You know, we've known about historically in ancient culture this relationship between the gut and the brain, but it turns out through, through Western science and through the microbiome, we've really been able to establish um, clear linkages um, between you know, what happens in the microbes in the gut and how we think and feel and so on. And so this first design object that we were working on was this 3D printed artificial gut. We were trying to create an engineering environment where we could actually allow researchers to prototype different types of microbial communities, right? So if you can imagine that certain combinations of microbes are upregulating or downregulating the production of certain, you know, short chain fatty acids, certain types of key molecules that influence these different aspects of human behavior. Well, it might be nice if we could actually, you know, up design communities of organisms that you know, promote health or promote, you know, better cognition or whatever it might be, therapeutic benefits, et cetera. And so that was kind of the, the genesis of this project. Could you make a sort of a, a lab on a chip, quote unquote, or a gut on a chip, quote unquote, that could actually simulate the physiology of a human gut and allow researchers to prototype different types of microbial communities? So that, I think, was my first really big experience in that in that area. I love this because, you know, this is a podcast about human-centered design, and you're basically talking about designing a human as a simulation for, you know, further operation. I think that's a kind of a beautiful circle that you just painted there. Great. So we're going to go back and hear a little bit more about the mask. And, and you really can't separate the, the evolution of the mask from the scientific advances that are starting to take place in the middle of the 19th century. We start to have the origins of germ theory be introduced. And it isn't until kind of the late 
1800s that we see the mask that we commonly interpret in the medical world come to be. And they started trying to say, well, how do we protect the patients from getting sick? We need to keep the wounds protected. And one of the ways that we could perhaps do that is to wear a cloth covering over our face to present any sort of bacteria or microscopic particles that we can't see, that we have good scientific evidence to suggest cause disease. If we can protect our face when we're operating on patients, then therefore we might have lower rates of infection and complication from that. There's an awareness of, uh, of germ theory of disease and viruses and microscopic organisms. With the microscopes they had available by the late 19th century, there was your proof. Nancy Toms is an American historian, author, and distinguished professor at Stony Brook University. She writes about the intersection of disease and understanding. I was blown away by the creativity that many different kinds of Americans displayed of taking this idea that there are invisible germs everywhere that are menacing you and turning them into devices that could protect or allegedly protect the household or, or your bodies. So Nancy's basically re rewinding the clock maybe 150 years to go back to a time where we were starting to create all these inventions to solve problems of these barriers to keep things out or you know prevent them from coming in at least. So patents for the toilet and the kind of S-trap that helps facilitate that. We have window screens so we can keep bugs out because you know you don't want bugs in your food and disease. You know, there's a kind of awareness and a real investment into hygienic things, things that would kind of make the world, your world feel more hygienic. It's interesting, right? I mean, I think a lot of the, the clips that you've been playing, you know, in the medical context, um, there are, I think, a lot clearer reasons why you really should be wearing masks. What I would love to see when we think about design objects and, um, you know, what masks could be used for is how do we get the, the kind of medical benefit that's being described in some of these clips, but combine it with um, features that can enable, you know, in a way, just like better, uh, you know, human experiences, right? Like we right now, one of the biggest issues that I have with masks, it's like just the fact that you cannot project and speak vocally as easily. You're facing that in the classroom, right? Uh, every day. Exactly. Every single day. Every single day. You're sitting in class and it's like people want to talk and communicate and it's just really difficult to do that. And it's funny, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge sports fan, right? So I'm watching these like, uh, you know, these basketball games or whatever. And it's like, you've got these, these coaches that are like, they've got their mask on and then all of a sudden they pull the mask down to like shout and yell at the referee or their players or whatever. And it's like, Dude, the whole point of the mask is to prevent you from like shouting because that's when the projectiles and that's where all of the virus particles, if you were infected, come out. So it's like people are not using the mask in the medical uh, context where they should be used. And this to me is a design problem, right? It's like, how can we better design masks that actually can enable us to have the medical protection and efficacy that we need there while enabling us to speak at normal volumes, right? There's so many of these design features that I think, you know, both right now, but looking into the future, um, that, you know, we can make some really, you know, critical innovations, I think, that can get the, both the benefit of the medical context that we're in, but combine it with all of the features of, of kind of just regular human engagement that um, we really need. The Futures Archive is brought to you by the design team at Automatic, which is building a new web and a new workplace all around the world. So I'm Pablo. People know me as Pablo Honey. I live in Brooklyn, New York, but I'm originally from Galicia, Spain. I'm one of the two members of the Design Council. The Design Council leads design at Automatic, 
Designing at Automatic is a bit different from other places. We operate in 80 countries. Um, we work with uh, 99 languages. So that makes it a little bit more challenging to make sure we connect with everyone. And we also are inclusive of everyone's background, opinion, and perspective on the work we do. So in that perspective, just the global setting is a little bit different. Design at Automatic has room for new voices. What we look for when we want to hire new designers, which we are, it can be boiled down to great talent and good human beings, no matter where you are, with a mission-driven approach to your work. Designing a better web. Join us at automatic.com slash design. That's auto, M-A-T-T-I-C dot com slash design. We were talking earlier about like having a mask that kind of works with our either fashion sense or our way of life. Do we feel safe wearing it? Um, how safe do we feel? Um, so I want to explore that a little bit uh, with one of our experts as well. I think one thing Sabrina and I have been really careful to do is this isn't a product that we've branded as a lifestyle product. Catherine and Sabrina Paceman are the co-founders of Fix the Mask. They're the makers of this sort of mask brace that goes around a typical surgical mask and gives a tighter and a what they have defined as a safer fit. They're trying to use science to really understand what is the optimal mask that can keep people as safe as possible, that can do the maximum filtration and things like that. Most people care more about how they look than how well they're being protected. And then there's another group of people who don't care at all about how they look. They would rather not get COVID. But I think now people are starting to fall in the middle where they want some sort of balance between something that looks good for them, but also gives them high quality protection. I know there are lots of designers that are working on this problem right now, including the this team at Fix the Mask. And they're trying to you know balance the aesthetics with the efficacy. Um, and they also talk about uh, color as well, just from a basic perspective of like, I remember when we first at the beginning of the pandemic, everything was kind of like white and blue surgical hygiene. And then we've kind of seen a lot of transformation. Let's hear a bit more from Sabrina of Fix the Mask. The color choice that we chose for our product was very intentional. We chose a light color because we wanted to emphasize cleanliness and uh, reiterate, you know, the cleanliness of like doctor's coats and such like that. So leaning into the science, leaning into efficacy and medicine, they're trying to signal, right? They're trying to say like, this thing works. It is actually not a fashion accessory. It is something that's effective. The idea that quote unquote works is like something that is white or blue or like has a certain kind of color and design aesthetic. Also, in a way, is this very Western mindset and connects with sterility. And I bring this up in the context of going back to my earlier um, you know, remarks around community biotechnology and community bio. We have colleagues that are all around the world trying to do the life sciences, right? And I had some colleagues in, in Africa, and I want to shout out uh, Thomas Mboa and the Mboa Lab. They're like looking at these white lab coats that come from the West, and they're like, why the heck do we have to have these, these lab coats that are just these like sterile, terrible looking like white objects? And, you know, Thomas and his, his colleagues in Cameroon are like, we need to decolonize like this, this notion that, you know, sterility and cleanliness has to be associated with like just pure white object. Right. And so in the Mboa lab in Cameroon, their lab coats are like these super vibrant colors that like connect with their cultural context and like, you know, with their with their local community and culture. And it's like, 
yeah, like why are lab coats this kind of white sterile thing? Like why can't they be vibrant and have all these colors and this other aesthetic? So I think it's really interesting how we've kind of through through what you've been you know sharing with these clips, we've sort of associated at least in the the West this idea that like cleanliness and sterility means a white or a light pale blue object when it's like why does that have to be the case, right? We could actually design things that do not look like that and have that same protection. I think we just traced 500 years of inertia moving us into that direction, which, you know, which informs, you know, cultural perceptions and the directions that designers take. Is that the only way to do it? No, let's, and and I think this kind of change that you're talking about is fantastic. Um, so, so aesthetic considerations and the things that we, you know, we think about design, we think about, does it look good? Does it work? Uh, who is designed for, these are all kind of things that we bring into design conversations and design processes. And I think in this conversation, we've talked both about the things that are outside that we wear, like masks and so forth, but we're also talking about the design of the inside. You know, some of your work is about what do we put into our bodies as a way to create change in a very similar way that you'd create a new product or a new offering you'd put in a store. Can you talk about a little bit of that in the context of human-centered design? Yeah, really interesting. So um, your audience may or may not be aware, but um, there's this really interesting kind of emerging field called uh, microbial therapeutics. And so part of the you know question from a design perspective is like, could you design a set, a community of organisms that if you introduce them into the gut, um, that they might have some type of a, of a benefit to that, that human? You might have like a community of a hundred different organisms and who is there and how do those interact with each other? And then what happens when we put them inside a human, right? It's sort of like the dinner party of microbes, basically, in your gut, right? Totally, totally. What's the cocktail party look like, right? And so that is one aspect of it. There's another area that, connecting back to our earlier conversation or the, the earlier idea around synthetic biology, a huge part of what synthetic biology is is actually engineering microbes so that they actually can do something different than what they normally are doing in nature, right? So the other context with the cocktail party is taking microbes that already have some function in nature, but you're putting them together in an interesting way. For the engineered microbes, this is like uh, synthesizing DNA molecules that may not have existed before in nature, encoding instructions into those DNA molecules that you then put into a microbe that gives it a new superpower that could be, you know, produce metabolite X or glow in the dark or, you know, whatever your superpower might be. And so you could introduce engineered microbes that are also producing molecules that might have a positive impact on the body. So that set of, of design that's happening both from an engineering perspective and also from a community design perspective is part of the cutting edge of what's happening right now in this field of, of what are called uh, microbial therapeutics or, or cellular therapeutics, another way to call it. And, and the, other, the other thing I'll just mention here kind of in closing of, of this thread, like, you know, we already do this a lot in the context of prebiotics and probiotics, which again, some of your listeners may take. Prebiotics are basically kind of foods that encourage the growth of certain types of microbes and probiotics are actually microbes themselves. Now, both prebiotics and probiotics tend to be transient, like they're things that you take and then kind of just flow through the, the body. Um, whereas what we're talking about right now with these, uh, these kind of microbial therapeutics, these are intended to kind of go into your body and stay there, right? So that's a, a whole process called engraftment, which again is, is very, very you know, technically challenging and is very much at the forefront of this field. So where we want to go now is to think um, the scale of the biome is increasing, right? So we're talking about little things and we're not now talking about the human body. What if we extend that to the built environment? I know there's a lot of research being done in uh, sewers in Cambridge to try to determine, like, how's the COVID outbreak going based on the sewage that we can track and test? But the scale can get bigger, right? 
Oh my gosh, yes. So here again, you know, want to shout out uh, Mariana Matus and um, her work with this incredible company called Biobot. Mariana was a PhD student uh, as part of the Eric Alm group. So for those of you interested, please look into the work of Eric Alm. Uh, he helps to direct the MIT uh, uh, Microbiome Center. Um, and Eric's group, along with Mariana as part of her PhD thesis, developed some of the first sensors that would ultimately go into sewer systems that can basically uh, monitor um, the content of not just microbes, but other kinds of, uh, of entities, including now, as we've seen with COVID, um, viruses as well, anything that you can basically sequence. And so um, Mariana's company, um, Biobot, is now deploying these uh, these monitoring systems throughout municipalities all around the world. And this has been one of the single, I think, most important um, kind of interventions and uh, infra pieces of infrastructure that's been massively helpful when we talk about disease surveillance. So, you know, I think there's this whole uh, kind of big world of like um, a design world in a way of like, how do you make visible the invisible, right? You know, I'm just thinking about some of the themes of of your of your uh, podcast here. Just thinking about kind of human centered design and, in a way, the relationship with nature. Right? There's a huge amount that we don't really understand about the larger systems and the ways in which these microparticles and these these uh, microscopic organisms are actually part of healthy ecosystems. There's the human microbiome, but there's microbes in almost again every kind of living ecosystem you can think about. And I'm thinking about you know right now, like let's talk about the forests or rainforests or soil, right? Massive amounts of microbes there that are producing all kinds of interesting compounds that all sorts of different organisms need, both for decomposition, but then also for for life, right? We really need to be thinking a lot about systems, right? We really need to be thinking not just about like kind of individual organisms and their place in you know, designing just for the human, right? Going back to that notion, something that we've been exploring a lot in my lab and thinking a lot about are things like, you know, what does nature-centered design look like, right? What is an ecosystem or system-centered design? This uh, pandemic underlined the relevance of what ecology can do because it's a result of disrupted ecology. Claudia Pasquero is the director of Ecologic Studio, an architectural and urban design studio co-founded in London. In reality, the metabolism of the planet is changed. And the question is not how we bring it back, but how we modify it further, uh, establishing positive dynamic. From our point of view, future of architecture looks like an integration between the biological and the artificial and architectural landscape will be far less segregated. So very similar to what you were talking about before, David, this ecologic studio is really designing with the microbiome, not against it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's my my hope for the future for sure, is this idea of, of just, you know, greater harmony, right? Like, I think, you know, the natural world, it is us, right? Like this whole notion that like we are somehow separate and different from it or that, um, you know, we have to design for or against it it may not even be the right framework at all, right? You know, I've been teaching this class uh, at MIT this semester called Ancient Future Technology, where we've been thinking a lot about, you know, how do we bring values and worldviews and perspectives that come from, uh, you know, communities that have been able to live in harmony with the natural world for centuries, right? What about a worldview where natural systems are not separate from us, right? In the West, we have this incredible West, um, you know, kind of reductionist mindset. Now, reductionism has produced incredible, you know, feats of discovery in science and technology, our ability to take a very complex system and break it down into little components and characterize those components. Amazing, really incredible, remarkable. But what about the system, right? And what about the idea that 
you know, we are inseparable from the system. And so I think there's there's a tremendous amount of wisdom from uh, from other other communities and other um, cultures that, you know, we in the West, I think, should really think very deeply about. Um, and that may honestly be critical for our future survival, the future survival of humans, at least on planet Earth. It strikes me that there is probably a bias that's built into all of our research institutions and academic you know, universities and so forth around uh, this phenomenon you're talking about, this reductionist breaking things down into its constituent parts and solving for it. And I can imagine that having basically kind of been optimizing for that for the last couple of centuries, and now all of these institutions are saying, well, that's the right way to solve problems. And we actually have no kind of infrastructure intellectually to look at systems. Like that's actually antithetical to the way that we've engineered higher learning. Are you kind of confronting some barriers in kind of introducing this way of thinking? Yeah, well, I mean, I think just in general, the fact that we've completely abstracted ourselves away from the natural world is massively problematic, right? There's this really kind of, a, um, I think, telling, um, I guess, folk story or, or, or tale about like the, the emperor from his, uh, you know, his kingdom, who every single day gets, you know, the plate of mangoes from the, uh, from the, the local environment. And every single day, you know, he gets the mangoes, gets the mangoes, but he doesn't know it. But, you know, his, uh, the, the members of his kingdom are going farther and farther out to get these mangoes because they're deforesting and so on and so on. And so he's decoupled from the idea that the natural environment is being impacted at all because he gets his mangoes every day. And then all of a sudden one day it's like, why are there no mangoes? And it's like, well, we've completely destroyed the forest, the mangoes. So, uh, you know, trees are all gone now, right? And so we have this, I think, exact same disconnect right now in our larger society where we have no more connection with these objects and the natural world. And so if we have that feeling that we're, we're just this isolated either individual or society or even that human society is isolated and disconnected from the natural world, we're going to continue to drive ourselves off the cliff and make decisions that are honestly ignorant of the actual reality of our unfolding, um, you know, kind of ecological crisis. Our ability to, you know, reformulate that relationship, I think, is really critical for our future survival. Okay, let's change things up a bit. As you know, every episode of the Futures Archive ends with a prompt, a sort of a design exercise for you, the listener, to keep working on the object and the ideas that we've talked about in this week's show. You'll be able to share your ideas and see what other listeners are thinking about, too. And I'll explain where to do that in a bit. So, as you heard from David earlier... Your human microbiome, or microbiota, is defined as the combined genetic material that resides on or within the human tissues and the biofluids inside your body. But what's really there? What we'd like you to do this week is draw a diagram, or better yet, an artistic interpretation, of your own personal microbiome. What do you want to add to your microbiome? Food? Water? Tostitos? What do you desperately want to keep out of it? Germs? Viruses? I don't know, maybe Tostitos? Anyway, what are the ways that you protect your microbiome? And by extension, what are the ways that you protect yourself? Please post your diagram on Instagram with the hashtag thefuturesarchive. That's all one word. We'll share some of our favorite responses in our Instagram story at Design Observer. You can read the full prompt on our Instagram and check out some of our favorite responses to last week's prompt. The Futures Archive is a podcast from Design Observer. To keep up with the show, go to tfa.designobserver.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you liked what you heard today, make sure to rate and review us and share it with your friends. David, it was so great to have you with us today. Um, if, 
if listeners want to find more information about you or your lab, where, where should they go? Uh, well, just first to say, Lee, this was super fun. Um, so as for me, um, you can find me on all the different social media things. Um, I'm at David Sun Kong, D-A-B-I-D-S-U-N-K-O-N-G on uh, Instagram, Twitter, etc. And um, if you're interested in the Biosummit, you can check out biosummit.org or at Biosummit on Instagram, at Global Biosummit on Twitter. And um, yeah, really excited to have been a part of this conversation and looking forward to seeing how the future unfolds. Thank you so much, David. Please post your answers for this week's assignment on Instagram using the hashtag thefuturesarchive. That's one word. We're really excited to see what you come up with. And make sure you're following us at Design Observer on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. The Futures Archive's education partner is Adobe. For each episode, you can find supporting materials, including further reading, lesson plans, and all kinds of activities suitable for college-level learners. For more information about Adobe's educational initiatives, follow them at edex.adobe.com. And the Futures Archive is brought to you by Automatic. Thanks again to Dr. John David Icke, Nitsi Toms, Catherine and Sabrina Paceman, and Claudia Pasquero for talking to the Futures Archive. You can find more about them and my co-host David Kong in our show notes at tfa.designobserver.com, as well as links to archival audio and a full transcription of the show. Our associate producer is Adina Karp. Owen Agnew edits the show. Blake Eskin of Noun and Verb Rodeo helped to develop the show. Thanks as always to Design Observer founder Jessica Helfand and to Design Observer executive producer Betsy Vardell. 